Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hello, welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, life coach and psychotherapist, Nikki Eisenhower. And on today's episode, I'm sharing a personal story about breaking free from manipulation and abuse. This year is the fifth year we've been doing Emotional Badass, and I want to talk more about really the things that are hard to talk about, manipulation and abusive relationships. Manipulation is one of those things that we all kind of know what it is, but it's really hard to spot when it's happening to you in real life. Manipulation is one of those things that I never intended to learn about. And that amongst other things, I jokingly say, I have an accidental life-given PhD in decoding manipulation. This is likely why I have such an affinity for the truth, for speaking it, for living it, for owning it, for being it. Manipulation in action is a hard thing to nail down. Maybe similarly to trying to define pornography. Good manipulation is done well. It makes us doubt our senses. It makes us go into confusion. It makes us mystify ourselves about the truth of what is happening externally and internally. I hope the story from my life that I'm about to share with you over not just one, but two episodes helps you see and sense, have awareness about manipulation in action in real life, how it plays out. What feelings show up when we are in it, what we ignore, what we sadly ultimately allow. This is one of those episodes where I don't have conscious clarity on the lesson I'm offering, but I do feel called and have for a while to share this particular story. So I trust my intuition that it's a story that at least one of you out there in the world needs and needs now. I hope there is something in this episode that you find for yourself, or it's a way to get to know me a little bit better, more deeply. It's also a way to practice whatever you need to practice this episode and all of my episodes. Many of the people who listen to this show, this audience, are codependent, and that means we tend to empathize, but we carry the burden on top of that empathy. When I share personal tough stories from my past, there's a huge opportunity for people healing codependency to practice listening and empathize without carrying the burden. This story is not comfortable for me to share, but it's an important story in my life. It's one that felt like a warning, like I I was getting warnings from spirit or from the energy of the universe 
or the angels if I have them, or my spirit guides, whatever word or phrase that anybody wants to use here. I felt warned. Warned that I better start using my intuition. Warned that I needed to listen more deeply and more fully. Warned that I needed to learn how to honor that listening. I have been scared for my life multiple times in real life. And that's not a boast. That is a sad reality that is not unique to me and is often the story for adult children of significant abuse. And it's shockingly a story for very strong, smart, empowered people, men and women. Growing up, I felt unloved, abandoned. I was consistently and repeatedly gaslit. My feelings, my concerns were minimized. I was blamed a lot for anything, really. Because true narcissists and sociopaths that I was raised with and that abound in the world, they only blame outwardly and for things outside of our control. I need to say this for recovering parents who listen to the show. A lot of you are struggling with perfectionism in your parenting while trying to break cycles of dysfunction. When I talk about parental abuse and neglect, I am not talking about occasional snapping or saying something crappy out of irritability or a bad day or a reactivity that you are working on. Good parenting does make a lot of mistakes. And part of that good parenting is coming to children and owning those mistakes. In abusive homes, there is almost no ownership, no personal responsibility, tremendous immaturity in these ways that allow for these dynamics to play out day after day and year after year. I was a kid who truly did not feel loved, seen or considered by my biological parents. That's really what an abusive dynamic does to the development of its children. I felt overwhelmed and terrified of my mother's rage or of being shamed. And this happened with such a consistency that I felt broken by anxiety and depression and pain. It's a human tragedy. It's the height of wrongness that any person live with abuse and neglect long enough to normalize and internalize abuse dynamics. We have words, we have diagnoses like Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome is what we describe in an abducted child who can only both rely on their abuser, their captive, their captor for food, for water, for even permission to breathe. And any attention is craved even there. Stockholm Syndrome is a coping mechanism. And we typically associate that with abusive situations outside the home, abductions. And I don't believe we have a specific term that we associate. We don't have a category. We don't have a diagnosis for having Stockholm Syndrome with the family members that we were born into. Stockholm Syndrome is the development of positive feelings towards abusers over time. This is a way to survive. This is a way to try to find some semblance of reasonable humanity 
within really, really wrong circumstances. Longtime listeners will recognize me talking about the flip-flop. That's what I call it. There's a lot of flip-flopping when it comes to abuse. And in Stockholm Syndrome, often a rescued captive, a child that is rescued from an abduction, often has a loyalty to an abductor. It's a powerful flip-flopping that abuse like this creates. Think about the implications of this dynamic for those of us born into abuse instead of abducted into abuse. No one ever had to abduct me. They had free range to get to me and at me. This is a big motivator for me to keep sharing aspects of my story because people who grow up in abusive households are at a higher risk for taking their own life. They're born into abusive circumstances. Few things can be as desperate as that. And when we are desperate, the system has no other choice but to go into suicidal ideation as the escape. The more that I share, the more that I hope I offer an avenue out and away from a dysfunctional life towards a healthy, whole, fulfilling life because it is possible. In healing, there's a lot of flip-flopping that needs flip-flopping back to go from child of dysfunction to thriving adult, and it's doable. Don't let anyone or anything make you think that you can't heal. And if you don't believe that right now, that healing is possible for you, or you just feel so beaten down in this moment, please consider letting your inner child know this right now, that you are open to learning how to take better care of yourself than anyone who ever abused or neglected you ever did. It's okay to acknowledge to yourself, your inner child, the truth of things. And if right now you don't know if you can do the healing that you need, that's okay. What's not okay is telling yourself that you can't do it or that it's impossible. It's okay to use me. I am offering for you to use me to be able to say to your inner child, I might not really know what I'm doing. I might feel a little directionless. I might not know where to start. I might feel so overwhelmed. But Nikki seems like she's lived through a lot and is a real expert in this stuff. And she seems to deeply believe that healing these issues is very, very possible, even when it doesn't feel like it. What if she's right about that? What if my life can get a whole lot better if I just keep showing up and I just keep letting go of dysfunction and moving towards wholeness and wellness and health and self-respect and self-love little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit. Openness is all that is required to heal and you were here. If you weren't open, you would not be listening to my voice. This story contains a primal kind of fear that I don't think I've ever encountered since. There's a lot of emotional and mental abuse nuanced in this story. In a sense, if we get punched in the face, we have little confusion about what happened. Someone lost their cool and hit me is pretty clear. Emotional mental gaslighting, intentionally trying to get you to doubt yourself, having our reality played with, having our self-trust and the trust of others dinged, diminished, twisted. This leads us to feeling isolated, broken, and deserving of the abuse that's getting dished out. 
And the abuser hopes, maybe not in a conscious way, but in a subconscious way, that we stay stuck in this dynamic forever and ever, continuing to play this out mindlessly and painfully. I share this story in part because it's mine, but I also share it because it's not mine. Every abusive relationship, no matter how different, is amazingly similar when we understand the dynamics beneath the surface level of what's playing out. So I share this for me, and I share it for everyone else. Everyone else who survived, and especially for those who haven't. So let me start with some backstory. And if you're new to me, this is going to sound like a lot. I hit adulthood very withered and raw. My childhood sexual abuse memories were very much truly repressed, and repression is still controversial. I didn't know, but I felt strong energy that I couldn't decipher around my parents and my sisters. So I had the sense that something was deeply wrong, but I didn't know what or why, and it had been so normalized to me I didn't quite know how to even see it anymore. It felt really deep. And all I had to make sense of it in my teenage mind was having a bitchy mother. That made sense to my youthful understanding. That was how my friends thought of my mom. So I thought I was kind of a big complainer and a whiner 49er and I just had a difficult mom and I needed to suck it up. My biological father had abandoned me fully by the age of 10, maybe 11. And then at 14, I was manipulated into asking my abuser, my mom's husband, to adopt me. He played up that he was so sad about losing his kids. He had two kids that were younger than me and my sisters that he had had before he met and married my mom. I'd learn at the age of 23 that the reason his wife was able to take those children out of state is because through psychological evaluation, they suspected that he had abused both of his children, a boy and a little girl, as toddlers. So that's a whole story for another day. At this time, I, a very highly sensitive kid, I was aware that my biological dad signed away the rights to me to get out of back child support. And that allowed my abuser to adopt me officially in the very parish. That's a county anywhere else other than Louisiana. The same exact parish where those custody evaluations were filed for his divorce. My grandparents, who had lived a five-minute drive from the University of New Orleans, the state university that I had wanted to go to and suspected I would go to because it was kind of the cheapest option for me. They died when I was 15 and 17. And I had gone through high school really expecting them to be a touchstone for me through college. That was the home that had been my one true haven that I had lived in for the primary years of my development. But Grammy died when I was 15 and Grandpa died when I was 17. And that house was sold by their children. I was grieving them. I was grieving their house. I was grieving that future expectation about how college would look, how it would feel. I was grieving because I had lost really my true parents two years apart in my teens. 
and no adult around me, not even the school counselors and the out-of-school counselors that I was seeing seemed to grasp how deeply I was grieving, how shook I was from these losses. I, gra- I graduated high school at 17, not turning 18 till that summer. I was the person who brought a 27-year-old with a Xanax problem to prom. My peers whispered, who brought the grown-up to prom? His father was sexually inappropriate with me while I was in their home. He'd do super weird creeper things when his son wasn't around, like asking me to masturbate when his son wasn't around and just letting him watch. I never told that man boyfriend that I had about his father. That boy man, for lack of a better way to say that, was actually really kind and sweet to me. All things considered, despite the inappropriateness of our ages and him nursing a hefty drug problem. I ran away from home in October of my senior year, shoved my things in a zipped up sleeping bag and left. I had a car that my grandpa had signed over to me, putting it in my name so that my mother couldn't take it. He was aware of who his daughter was. So I I had a car. It was my one real possession in the world and it helped me find freedom. It felt like him taking care of me even after he died. I couch surfed that year till I wound up at a friend's. And I was living with her and her dad, who was an alcoholic. He'd drink about two boxes of wine each night. One day he got so drunk, he burnt down the kitchen while I lived there. And he never fixed it. That friend would wind up in rehab for cocaine before we left high school. While I lived there, she'd tell me, you go ask my dad. He loves you. He won't tell you no. And so I would. And he gave us ridiculous rules. Like the bars in Louisiana close at 2 a.m. You should be home by 3 a.m. That was the rule for me living in that house. And that was on weeknights. That was the rule. On the weekend, we didn't have to come home at all. If that sounds shocking and bizarre to you, I am from New Orleans. It might be the drinking capital of the world. Culturally, we drink young and we drink hard. I was a regular at a bar at 16. And younger listeners, that is not a flex. That is tragically pathetic. I was lost and I was hurting. I was desperate. I didn't know what I was doing as a person. I didn't know what I was doing as a woman. I was lost and I was trying to find some feel good around the feel bad and alcohol and drugs fit the bill. I miraculously made it to college through the divine intervention of a rich man who died in Louisiana and the year that I started college, his scholarship began. His generosity was essential to me making it through. And it felt like a miracle, a miracle that it was there, a miracle I still qualified because I had started a rebellion. I had gone from good girl to rebel and rebels, not bad y'all. We think it is, but when we're rebelling, often there's good reason. I just didn't know it back then. And in that rebellion, we can sometimes hurt ourselves. I had given my senior year in high school the finger. 
I'll never forget reading my report card from that time. I was a gifted student. We had honor students and we had gifted students. And we had the numbers printed on our report cards. I will never forget. I have the image seared into my mind. Gifted calculus. 10F. I had managed to get a 10, yes, on a 0 to 100 scale in my gifted calculus class. I had entered a rebellion the year after Grammy died. And that was a year before Grandpa died. And for the first time in my life, I went from being teacher's pet to beefing with a teacher. I gave up. I turned in no homework. I doodled on the tests. And I gave that teacher the finger every way I knew how. I hadn't yet learned that fuck somebody else is actually fuck myself. So I hurt myself because she hurt me. It makes no sense, but that's what our pain does. I felt hurt and desperate and I gave up. I felt betrayed by her. It was an intimate, small class. She gave me a zero when I missed class when my grandpa died. And she insisted on a note from my mother. I had had this teacher for three years in a row. My cousin was in the class with me. And she knew from the absence note my aunt wrote my cousin that I wasn't lying. I broke down and cried in the front of the class as she was confronting me. I was frustrated and I felt broken. I felt like nobody had my back. I stood in front of the class and starting to raise my voice. I told her, you know I'm not living at home. Do you want me to forge a note from my mother? And it's in memories like this that I say to my inner child how much I love her. Despite all the chaos and instability and lostness and rebellion, I can see that I was still trying to not lie and find some honesty and just be treated as a person. I can see who I am today in her, even through the layers of pain that I was in that I can see in her in that memory. I understand that the teacher took her own stand on the rules, and I responded by completely giving up and being rude to her in class. I guess she had a right to do that, but I think it really missed what I needed in that moment, and it missed the person that she had seen me be all of those years. On top of everything else, it felt like a major betrayal and another proof that I couldn't really trust people. Late that year in that math class and a few others, programming funds changed and the honor students were then combined with the gifted students. And it was a scene. The honor students walked into our gifted classroom and gifted just meant that we had all been tested when we were younger on IQ tests above 130, and so they had put us together. So as the honor students walked in, there was some ego involved in us versus them. And they looked around, and a few students guffawed, exclaiming, Nikki's in gifted? You've got to be kidding me. Like laughing, like I had the reputation of a dumbass. And I had felt like the dumb one in the smart classes. I wanted to melt into the floor and die. I remember thinking as almost a declaration to myself that I didn't fit anywhere. Not at home, not in my family, not at school, not in any one group. I was the white girl that would go 
be the only white girl in black circles. I would hop around circles, but I didn't really fit anywhere. I felt like an alien, not like a person. I judged myself. I declared myself someone other people just didn't get. And that had to mean to me at the time that something was really, truly, deeply wrong with me. These thoughts are like a mini course in how to foster depression inside of oneself, how to foster a worthlessness. I was earning a very low F in that calculus class, but I was earning a fucked up A and digging my own deep depression hole. Somehow, I had it together enough to make it to college. My parents left me at the dorm at the University of New Orleans the first day it opened. There were almost no people on campus. Part of the scholarship I received that made it possible for me to go to school. And that's how good my grades had been before my senior year was that I still qualified for scholarship. There was a $1,500 stipend for the lunchroom in the campus bodega. My parents left me with 50 bucks and I cried as I walked in because they were disinterested in seeing my prison cell like dorm room that I was so excited about. After a year of couch surfing, I was going to have some stability. Not quite the thing I think most students show up at college thinking. I had endless hope that my personality disordered parents would all of a sudden show up in a reasonable way for me or with me. Be happy for me or with me. Celebrate something for me or with me. But that wasn't available. That 50 bucks went quickly as I used it to gas up my car and buy a meal or two. I lost weight from hunger at a time that I didn't have any weight to lose. And I was scared of not having food those first few weeks of school because I found out the meal plan didn't kick in till school officially started in two weeks. The dorms were mostly for international students. I believe I was the only one in the entire dorm that had family in the area and was living in the dorm. I will never forget 18-year-old me desperately calculating the possibility of actually starving to death and how much I would not let myself reach out to any of the 20-something area extended family members I had. And I didn't know why back then, just that I was ashamed of who I was. I was ashamed of needing. I was ashamed of asking for any kind of help. Now I know that I resisted asking for help because help came with shame. Help came with control. Help came with a dismissiveness. And I just couldn't endure anymore or I'd implode. This is a very important point because this is very, very much unfortunately true in dysfunctional families that pure help isn't available. There are strings attached. There are control issues and power struggles. And this may be a big factor in why people don't reach out to their support systems. TV, the news, social media makes it sound like just keep reaching out to your people and reach out to your people. That makes great sense if you come from a solid, healthy, safe family. That's a very hard message. I wish we could expand that message to reach out to somebody safe instead of reach out to your support network. Those of us born in these families, we don't know the difference until we do. That the people around us telling us that they'll help us and support us may not know how because of their own dysfunction. 
At 18, I picked up a nearby restaurant job as a hostess. I figured a restaurant was my best bet to actually be able to make some tips and some money to support myself. A man that worked there hit on me within the first few days of me working there, asked me out to one of the top five fine dining restaurants in New Orleans. I was both privately starving while having a fine dining date scheduled later in the same week. It felt insane. He was 24 years old to my weeks into turning 18. My last boyfriend had been 27. To my thinking, this was an improvement in age. I felt something was off. I felt that not rightness feeling in my gut. Something was too intense. Something was too assertive about how he came to the front of the restaurant. Almost aggressive. Almost predatory. Now when I look back, it's so clear, but I couldn't see it back then. I didn't have enough life experience. I didn't have enough self-worth. It was a scene of him pissing on my leg. He was marking me for the other men there, so they knew to tread lightly, to not engage me, to leave me alone. While I thought he was asking me out on a very nice date, he was actually claiming me and pre-controlling me. And controlling people do that. They find some kind of subtle way to own another person, and they do it right from the start. At that fine, fancy restaurant, we were escorted to a private table in a private room. And if you've never experienced an old-school New Orleans waiter in a historic fine dining restaurant, you're missing out. That is some, some good stuff right there that everybody needs to experience once, in my opinion. It's like having your own butler. And they were friends. Years later, I'd find out that this was sort of a routine. The waiter owed him money. And our date was how he was paying him back. And this is also true of manipulators. They tend to surround themselves mostly or only with people who have something to offer them. Something they can take, something they can use. They tend to surround themselves with people who obey their charms, who obey their directives, and never ever contradict or challenge them in any way. They tend to dominate charmingly. I was not the first girl that waiter saw with this man in this restaurant. This was a routine, and young me just didn't know it. His family seemed to put him on a pedestal. He told them what to do. And he would speak disrespectfully to his mother while declaring his love for her. He had an involved father, but they were not like father and son. They had a relationship that I can only describe as like criminal bros. This was an entirely different kind of dysfunction than I grew up in. These kids and parents were friendly. They did everything together. And I felt their love and attachment to one another. They'd protect each other and show up for each other. I was confused because I felt my parents, my mother in particular, didn't care about me and didn't love me. And I felt genuine love, care, commitment, and concern from this family. I'm sure they all still see each other frequently, if not every week, like so many other Louisiana families and dysfunctional enmeshed families do. Healthy families can certainly meet frequently healthily, 
But dysfunctional families often have a very strong bond. The parents and the children, they were friends. And they accepted me immediately. I was cared for. I was appreciated by his extended family members. I would hear proud stories of lying, of manipulation, of absence of morals, shared like lighthearted, funny stories over holiday dinners with laughter and wine, like the energy of popping popcorn kernels into our mouths. And what shocked me at first became numb and normalized over seven years of a relationship. I didn't know how to process those things as red flags, as warnings, as alarms. In that time, I was maximally depressed. In that time, some of my adoptive father's sexual abuse memories came back weeks before I married this man. In that time, I pressed charges against my dad for his abuse. As this relationship continued, I finished an undergraduate degree and began my master's degree. And he hated that I wanted to be a counselor. He hated that I kept pushing counseling on us. I have always wanted to have healthiness and wellness and felt like I have been spinning my wheels through my youth, trying to get there with myself and with others who just weren't interested in a healthiness the way that I was. He tried to sabotage my schooling while I was with him. But the promise that I had made to myself for my dead grandparents was that I would finish college. And part of what has saved me in this life is that I was born tenacious and determined. And those are skills that can be developed, can be grown, can be empowered in anyone. For the sake of time, I'll shorten the middle of my story to this. He never hit me. In fact, he would say in rage, I'll never hit you. I'll never give you the satisfaction of having any proof. So he'd do things like not let me sleep when I was depressed and exhausted He'd pull the covers off of me and wake me up, turn all the lights on in the house at one in the morning, two in the morning, four in the morning when I was working breakfast at 7 a.m. as a breakfast waitress and then going to school. Sometimes he wouldn't come home or wouldn't come home till 3, 4, or 5 a.m. He didn't think I had any right to know any kind of schedule that he had. He'd yell in my face. He'd back me into corners. He'd push me, but never hit me. I had been raised, and the points that I can give my mother are here. She definitely raised me with a direct message to never, ever, ever let a man hit me. And I took that message. I held it. So I knew that if this man ever hit me, that that was the line. Somehow, the master manipulator in my early life and in so many people's lives seems to have some kind of dark magic to know where your line is and not cross it. I knew that that was the line. So that's the line he didn't cross with me. This might have been my first boundary in some ways, but an insufficient boundary to keep me sane and safe. I left one night after he backed me into a corner of a very narrow kitchen. I was up against a counter. His arms were straddling me. I was pinned. My eyes shifted to the knife drawer. And as all the cliched domestic violence information says, things escalate. 
and they escalate almost universally in these types of dysfunctional relationships. He caught my eyes and started in at me. Oh, you think you've got some big balls, huh? I dare you. Because he saw my eyes go to that knife drawer. I somehow managed to squirm away and frantically search for my keys as he continued to come at me. He pinned me in another part of the house. I ultimately picked up a big textbook that was right there. And as he had his body kind of lording over me, trying to push me down into the sofa so I couldn't get up, I swung the book at his shoulder and chest area and surprised him. He was a bit stunned and had to gather his thoughts for a moment. And he started screaming after me as I was grabbing my keys and running from the house that now I had assaulted him and the police would be looking for me. And he was so delighted. He was in glee. That line that he had never crossed with me, he had gotten me to cross it. Now, surely that was self-defense, but I was spooked and I was scared. I ran from the house. I jumped in my truck and then had a very, very scary next few weeks of hiding. I had $75 to my name. He had taken all of my money and credit cards, account access from me months before. He had convinced me to stop working and just focus on finishing school. And and I had been so excited to just be able to focus on school for the first time in my life. Most of my schooling was done while I worked 70 hours a week and was a full-time student. I slept in my car and I cried like a leaky faucet that wouldn't turn off. And I dreamed of my grandparents with restless sleep. That's the background. The year I left him, I had seven jobs, all promising enough money to live and none delivering. I left like the cliche in the middle of the night with the clothes on my back. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I refused anyone who told me to go to a shelter. I did not want to consider me as someone who needed to go to a shelter. And that inability to humble myself and allow that help made my life harder and scarier. I shamed myself that I was too smart to be living like that. I was raw. I was tearful. I was shaken. My post-traumatic stress symptoms were through the roof. My startle response back then was massive. If anybody just said, hey, Nikki, I was so in my head and so dissociative with my body that I just startle then that would embarrass me. Then I'd shame myself more. There's lots more to this story that will likely be in a memoir one day. But for now, I want to tell you that I never signed divorce papers with this man. I never went to court. A wife of a friend of his that had been a friend of mine. I was the godmother for her child. She pulled me aside when I came to visit her children And she told me frantically that she overheard a few men plotting to kill me. It's not an easy thing to form the words and say out of my mouth. She told me to never, ever come back, that I couldn't ever, ever come back. I was truly scared for my life. And my friends who knew him were genuinely scared that I'd wind up a Dateline episode. I was waiting tables and closing up. One night in a very different restaurant than I started this story in. And a manager told me I had a phone call and the person sounded drunk. And for a minute I was puzzled, and, but I felt cold in the pit of my stomach. 
And I didn't yet know how to listen to that coldness in the pit of my stomach to pivot, to redirect. So I took that landline and I said, hello. I knew it. He slurred. Now I know where you work. See you soon. He laughed as I dropped the phone and burst into tears. In desperation, I told my manager what was going on and that he was probably on his way to kill me. The manager told me to get my stuff, get out of there. They sent the biggest guy. He was happened to be a giant dude. He was actually seven feet tall. Walked me to my car. I left. I never worked there again. My mother had told him where I was working while she knew I was in hiding of him. This is what ultimately brought me to going no contact with her. She had gone out of her way to strike up a friendship with him the moment that I left. She had not wanted anything to do with him all of the years that I was with him. I've talked a lot about going no contact with my mom, but I haven't ever shared this detail. My story is layered with ridiculousness, y'all, that falls into the category of just can't make this shit up. Yep, my mom, the sociopath. Manipulators are convoluted. It's like a sticky web you can't sort. I stopped contact with my mom and I stopped letting my sisters know where I was living or working. The courts couldn't find me to serve me papers that he had filed for our divorce. I actually wrecked my car during this time. And it was towed. It was undrivable. So it was towed. And with his name on that vehicle, he fixed it and then tried contacting me, saying that he would just give me the car back. If I just signed the divorce papers, I could have the truck back. I abandoned the truck because I thought it would blow up. I thought the brakes would go out. I thought he'd put a tracker on it. This is how I came to live and work in the French Quarter. But for this story, I was living in Mid-City with a friend right off of the streetcar route. I rode all the way home to her house. It was midday. It was sunny. It was Louisiana hot. The streetcar came to my stop. I pulled the string and I stopped at my friend's street. I kept my wits about me consciously and I saw a white van that my intuition did not like creeping up. It had been waiting. I felt it creeping behind me. I had a book bag and I was holding books in my arms and a grocery bag. I had all kinds of stuff with me. I started walking faster and faster and faster. And I felt the van speed up. And as I did, I instinctively dropped my things and ran. I ran for my life. I thought, this is it. I'm being abducted. And I thought I was about to be murdered. It flashed through my mind that no one would ever know what happened to me. Next week's episode is going to be part two where I can finish this story. If you'd like to hear the end of this story right now, come to Patreon. We're going to put this episode at the $2 level and you can listen right now. This will be the next episode right here. I'm glad that I'm here. Obviously, I have made it all the way to here. I'm okay. And I'm glad I've made it all the way through to the other side. Because there's no other way than through. If you resonate with the story that I'm sharing in little ways, in big ways, in any way. If you're new to the show, I want you to know that all of my work, all of the content that I have put out in the last almost five years is basically the stuff that we need as people to rinse the ick off of our self-talk 
and be in true self-respect and self-regard. Because when we do, we are unstoppable. We are unabusable. And we become our own white knight. Humans are incredibly resilient. And you can recover, you can repair from damn near anything. And don't you ever forget that or let the gremlins of your mind convince you in some kind of dark outcome for you. I have a wonderful life now and I never thought I could. That's tragic. This is why I do the show. If you're struggling out there, you can cultivate a safe life. You can cultivate a full life. You can cultivate a self-loving, self-respecting, expansive, beautiful life. And when you can't believe that for yourself, I'd be honored if you'd allow me to hold that belief for you until you can get there yourself. If you want to hear part two, come hang out with us at patreon.com backslash emotional badass. We have big goals for the Patreon this year. Come hang out. Come see what we have for you. It helps us get this show out to everybody else around the world that is struggling with the very thing that I shared today. Light and love, and I'll see you for part two next week if I don't see you at the Patreon. I am an emotional badass. You were an emotional badass. And together we are where Moxie meets Mindful. Light and love. Bye-bye.